Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Good morning. My name's Andy. If you don't know me, I haven't looked at everybody who's here. Um, but I, along with my wife, Claire, we lead this site of Christchurch Manchester. Um, and if you've got a Bible to hand, grab it and turn to the letter to the Colossians right towards the end of the Bible. Um, and I wonder, uh, as we get started, if you would humour me by doing something. Uh, Josh said to grab a, a pen and a paper and some paper, uh, maybe your phone, whatever you have to hand and, and just do, do something for me write down as many of the things that you can think of that you did this week. Just write down as many things that you can think of, people you interacted with, tasks you attempted, tasks you completed, places you went, just write it all down. And while you have a think about that, if it's all right with you, I'm going to share a little bit about my week, some of the things that I did, uh, what would be on my list if I were writing these things down right now. This week I attended several Zoom meetings, I planned this sermon, I read several articles about Paul in prison for my PhD. I spent an hour clearing out the loft of the house that Claire and I just moved into. I had new broadband installed, unpacked a lot of boxes, bought some new blinds. I went to a community group, met up with a couple of guys from church to catch up, one at a time and outdoors, I promise. Hosted the CCM Fallowfield quiz. I took the car to the garage to get a headlamp replaced. I read about 25% of a novel. I watched the Bake Off final, of course. Spent some time reading the Bible and praying as well, and spent a lot of time with Claire as well. Now, if you're wondering why on earth I've given you so much insight into what really is quite a mundane week, then fair enough. But there is a reason. The reason is that because as followers of Jesus, there is no area of our lives where we don't have the opportunity to glorify God. I have no doubt that many of you will have had much more interesting weeks than I did. But I'm sure some of you are also on some level aching uh, for your car headlamp to break or your smoke alarm batteries to run out just so you have an excuse to get out. But I want to reassure and encourage you that whichever one of those camps you find yourself in, God calls us to see every element of our life, every task, however fascinating or mundane, as an opportunity to glorify him. That's what our passage is going to show us today, that Jesus transforms all areas of our lives. This morning, I'm going to be bringing our Only Jesus series in the letter to the Colossians to a close. In this incredible letter by Paul, uh, we've seen him devote two whole chapters to just explaining the unmatchable truth and hope of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ's life, death and resurrection. And last week, we began to see how believing this message, believing in Jesus, means that we get to put on a new self and take off our old self and see all the different ways that Jesus transforms our lives and our lifestyles. Last week, uh, Rosie spoke about how Jesus is our blueprint for change. This change that begins in our mindset. Rosie challenged us to think about what we think about and set our hearts and minds on things above, as it says in Colossians 3 verse 1. And when we allow the truth of Christ to dwell richly in our hearts and minds, then like a tree planted next to a stream which blossoms because of the clean water it drinks, we begin to see all of this reflected in our lives. 
In the verses we read last week, Paul encourages us as believers to think about our attitudes and behaviours and whether they're in keeping with that new self, which has its identity rooted in Christ. And in the passage we're going to read this week, Paul shows us how Jesus transforms every area of our life, that every single thing is an opportunity to glorify God. I'm going to read Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 to chapter 4, verse 6. And you'll see that Paul begins with some specific instructions to specific groups of people in the church community. Starting with verse 18 of Colossians 3, it says, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So that was Colossians 3.18 to 4.6. And we could probably spend a sermon talking about each of those verses individually, but that's not what we're going to do today. We're going to look at them all. And we see here that Jesus can transform every area of our lives from our attitudes towards one another in the home, to our workplace, to the private space where we go to pray, and in the rest of the world too. And at the beginning of the passage that we read, Paul addresses a few groups of people specifically to show them how they can glorify God in their lives. Now the church in Colossae that are uh, receiving this letter that it would have been read out in their community by one of their leaders, this church was probably made up of a couple of large multi-generational families, one of whom would have probably hosted the church in their home. And the majority of the rest of the community were probably slaves. But we'll get to that in just a moment. First, Paul shows the Colossians that Jesus transforms our family life. He begins with four instructions to wives, husbands, children and parents. Let me read those once again. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Now we can see two very important things in these instructions towards these two groups of people, married couples and parents and children. The first thing we can see is that our position and role in life nuances slightly the way we can best glorify God. In other words, it looks slightly different, emphasis slightly, for a wife or a husband or a child or a parent to glorify God in their respective roles. And the second thing we can see is that actually it is possible to imitate Jesus 
both in submission and in servant leadership. And in each of the family relationships described here, there's an opportunity for both of those ways of imitating Jesus. I think a good way to view these relationship dynamics is as a bit like a, a bicycle. On a bike, you have two wheels. That's why it's called a bicycle. But those wheels do slightly different things. Only one of them is activated by the pedals. But if one of those wheels bends or goes flat or stops functioning properly, the bike just doesn't work. In the same way, I believe that God is glorified in our family relationships, and that's what Paul's getting at in the passage here, when both of these elements, submission and servant leadership, are present. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. One doesn't work without the other. Sadly, of course, and this might have come to mind as you read these verses, the idea, for example, of a wife submitting to her husband in marriage has been warped and twisted primarily but not exclusively by husbands not taking the command to love their wives seriously enough and using things like this as an excuse for mistreatment. But that's not how God intended this relationship to be at all. Claire and I have been married for four years, which means we are by no means the experts. And although we both believe the same things about marriage and we believe that these verses in Colossians and the very similar verses you find in Ephesians and not just for the Colossian people and the Ephesian people, they're for us today as well. I really wanted to get her perspective on what she sees her role as, submitting to me as her husband, what she sees that role to be. So this week, while planning this sermon, I asked her, and she said two really, really helpful things that I want to share. First, Claire said, submitting to you shouldn't be anything but freeing. And second, she said, submitting to you reminds me of how Jesus submitted to the Father. And both of these things are really helpful and really biblical as well. The first thing Claire said about how submitting to me should be freeing for her, well, that's about how I love her as a husband. Ephesians 5.25 is very similar to Colossians 3. And verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And what this means is that as Claire's husband, I should only lead our family in a servant-hearted, Christ-like way, which helps Claire to understand and feel that she can freely affirm my leadership without any control or coercion. I should be actively laying down my life, my own concerns, my own desires, my own priorities for the sake of Claire's. This is why at verse 21 says, and this is kind of reading it a little bit more literally in the Greek language that it was written in, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because a wife submitting to her husband is intended to be a freely undertaken joy and pleasure, not a forced obligation. And the second thing that Claire said about how submitting to me reminds her of the submission of Jesus is an incredible way that she can imitate Jesus in her own life. Submission and servant leadership are both about laying oneself down for the sake of another, and this models the character of Jesus just beautifully. Philippians 2 verses 6 to 8 are a, a hymn about Jesus or part of a hymn about Jesus that say this. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. 
it is possible to imitate Jesus in submission as Christ submitted to the will of the Father and as the church submits to Christ. And it is possible to imitate Jesus in servant leadership, laying down one's life for the sake of another. And the same can be true as we move forward in our passage of a parent-child relationship. But once again, like that bicycle analogy, for this relationship to function properly, glorify God and be healthy, it requires both parts to be doing their roles. Children are able to honour God by obeying their parents. And that goes right back, doesn't it, to the Ten Commandments. But most of us here listening in today have now left home. Maybe it was a long time ago that we left home. And I wonder on reflection how much you feel that you honoured your parents by respecting their wishes during perhaps particularly those teenage years. I'm not sure I want to think about that too much, to be honest. But I think that we can certainly still honour our parents, even if we don't live with them or haven't for a long time. We can still honour them now. Perhaps just one example is having just been told in the UK that we're going to get five days over Christmas to form a bubble with up to two other households. We may have an opportunity to honour our parents by spending time with them, showing them we love them by spending Christmas with them. We can honour God sometimes by putting our parents' needs before our own, even when we're adults. Now, of course, for many, this might not be possible. But the point is that like verse 18 only works when verse 19 is done right. Verse 20 only works when verse 21 is done right, too. Let me read that verse 21 again. And that word fathers almost certainly means collectively parents. Parents do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. I want to acknowledge that each of us here will have had very different experiences with our parents. And I know that some of those will have been really painful. Your parents may have been absent during your life or controlling or abusive. And obeying them in everything, therefore, would have been a completely inappropriate thing for you to do because what they wanted from you may have been completely unfair. A child obeying and honouring their parents, submitting to their authority freely and without coercion requires parents to lay down their own lives for their children as well, to put their children's needs before their own. I'm so grateful for the times that my parents did that for me and I probably don't even know the half of that. But again, whatever it may look like in our lives, we can glorify God in our family relationships, whether it be by submission or by servant leadership, but not just one of those. These relationship dynamics, and this is what Paul's getting at, glorify God when both wheels are turning and we glorify God in respective roles. Now, so far, we've looked at the instructions given in this passage to wives and husbands, children and parents, but many of us listening in today uh, might not comfortably put ourselves in any of those categories. But as the passage goes on, it becomes increasingly inclusive of all members of the church. Next, Paul goes on to explain how Jesus transforms our work life by talking about something very specific to his culture and his church community, probably, the relationship between masters and slaves. Let me read Colossians 3, verses, verse 22 to chapter 4, verse 1. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favouritism. Masters, 
provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now, it's definitely worth mentioning here that slavery was completely woven into the culture of the first century. So much so that it was impossible for Paul to imagine a world without it, as impossible it is for us to imagine a world without electricity. But this in no way condones the institution of slavery. In fact, I would argue strongly, and this isn't the time that the Bible dismantles that institution completely. But it simply acknowledges that in Paul's context, this exists. There are two things we need to grasp here about what Paul's saying about how Jesus transforms our work life. The first thing is that by speaking directly to slaves, Paul was addressing a substantial portion of the church. Up to half of the population of the big Roman uh, Empire cities would have been slaves. So there's no reason for us not to think that up to half of the population of the churches would have been slaves as well. And the second thing that we need to recognize here is that the gospel bridges even the biggest social divides and gaps. In the church in Colossae, husbands and wives, children and parents, and even slaves and masters are of equal spiritual status because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. This is why Paul says just a little bit earlier in Colossians 3.11 that there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So although there are many things by which we might define ourselves, there is one above all the others, our identity in Christ, which in this context makes slaves and masters brothers. You know, in the same way, the church in the 21st century should be a place where anyone, no matter what their considered or perceived rank or social standing, should consider one another sisters and brothers in Christ. But what about outside of church life? This could be a little bit confusing, and it definitely was in Colossae, which is why Paul's addressing it. Is this newfound equality and freedom an excuse for the workers to overthrow the masters and assume control? Well, no, actually. Once again, Paul says there is an opportunity here for both employers and employees, to put it in our language, to glorify God, whether by submission, hard work without complaint, or by fair, kind, servant-hearted leadership, those two wheels of the bicycle turning together to create a good work environment that glorifies God. Paul's shortest surviving letter is written to a man named Philemon, who lived in Colossae and may well have been the host of the church receiving this letter. And the little letter to Philemon is about Philemon's slave, whose name is Onesimus. Now he has fled from Philemon, which was a, a huge offence, and he's found Paul. And in this little letter to Philemon, Paul does two things. Number one, he urges Philemon to welcome Onesimus back as a brother. So that, uh, and the reason is that by spending time with Paul, through spending time with Paul, Onesimus has become a Christian. So he and Philemon have become spiritual siblings. But Paul also, the second thing he does, he sends Onesimus back to Philemon, presumably to continue in his duties to his master. Paul says to Philemon, look, he's become useful to you now. But there is this completely and utterly new dynamic rooted in the loving example of Christ, with even a hint that Philemon might want to set Onesimus free due to their newfound brotherhood. And guess who is probably the carrier or one of the carriers of this letter to the Colossians? Well, it's Onesimus traveling from Paul back to Colossae. And now we're coming to the end of our Colossians series. 
I recommend that you have a read of this little letter to Philemon because it's a little bit like Colossians 3 verses 22 to 4 verse 1 in practice. It helps to see a little bit of how Paul took his own advice on board when dealing with this particular issue. But to think a bit more about the work lives that we might lead and how Jesus transforms them, have a look at that list of things that you did with your week. It might be a short list. I realise I didn't give you much time to think about it, but be honest. Were any of the things that you did in your week done begrudgingly because somebody else asked you to do it, but you didn't really want to? We probably all know exactly what that's like. But here, Colossians 3.23 tells us that every mundane task we do, no matter who we do it for, is an opportunity to serve the Lord. Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. So Jesus transforms our work life. We can honour him by humbly obeying our managers, serving diligently, and not just to win the favour of, of people, but by working as if God is our master. And for those of us who have colleagues under our leadership, well, we are taught to lead with kindness and compassion, being servants in the way we lead. Why? Because not one of us is top of the pile. Not the manager, not the regional manager, not the national manager, not the CEO. Every one of us has a master in heaven whom we must submit to, like Paul says in chapter four, verse one. In Matthew 20, two of Jesus' disciples called James and John ask Jesus for something. They ask for a favour. Actually, their mother asks Jesus for a favour, that James and John would be able to sit on either side of Jesus in the kingdom of God. But Jesus rebukes them, saying, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you know, there's nothing wrong with rising up in the world of work and getting promotions, leading more and more people. In fact, God is able to use all of that for his glory. But there is never an excuse to not lead like a servant, laying down our own status and importance for the sake of others. Whether we humbly submit to authority or lead like a servant or both, Jesus transforms our work life. Well, let's read on in our passage We've seen how Jesus transforms our relationships with one another, but what about how he transforms our relationship with God? Well, chapter four, verse two says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Jesus transforms our prayer life. Maybe until this point in the sermon, you've been struggling a little bit to relate to any of the above situations. Perhaps you're not married, you're not in touch with your parents and you're not, you don't have kids, you're not working at the moment perhaps, or you're studying so that you can work. But here's something that applies to every one of us, whatever our circumstances, we all need to come to God in prayer. I wonder if when you wrote down that list of things you did this week, prayer was on the list. That list is just for you to see, so be honest with yourself. Because prayer is the most powerful tool in the Christian's toolbox. Prayer is where we ask God for the strength to honour him in all of the areas of our lives that we're trying to change. Prayer is where we say, God, I need you. God, have your way. Corrie Ten Boom put it in the form of this challenging question. If you're wondering where you're up to with this idea of prayer, 
She said, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? When we bought our current car just over a year ago, I was overjoyed to find out that it came with a spare tire in the boot. And I know that that's quite lame, but our previous car had just come with a puncture repair kit. And let me tell you, you feel a bit more secure driving around in a car with a spare tire than you do with a car with a spray can in the boot. But how often do I treat prayer like it's that spare tire? Something I'm glad to have, but will only use in emergencies when I've exhausted every other avenue. Instead of treating prayer like the incredible gift it is. When we pray, we have a direct line to God the Father himself. This is why when Jesus taught his disciples the prayer that we now call the Lord's Prayer, it begins our Father in heaven. Because one of the results, the consequences of the cross of Christ is that we get to wear Jesus' righteousness instead of our own wickedness and sinfulness. And as Proverbs 15 verse 29 says, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. He hears the prayer of those who have been made righteous by Christ. Paul tells us, doesn't he, in this passage, in that verse, to be watchful and thankful in prayer. And this week I've been pondering what that means. To be thankful is perhaps the obvious one. Think about, lift up, write down everything in your life that you're thankful for, and most importantly, give all the credit to God who holds all things in his hand. But what about being watchful? Well, there are several hobbies and pastimes which include watching, aren't there? Whether it's train spotting or sightseeing or bird watching, the idea is that you've got your eyes wide open looking for something. What kind of things can we be looking for, watching for in prayer? Well, I can think of at least two. Number one, we can watch for things to pray for. How often do we think or say, yep, I'll pray for that and then forget to? Some people find, uh, as a result of this human forgetfulness, keeping a journal really, really helpful. To write down the things we want to pray for, large and small, personal, or for our friends and family and for the rest of the world as well. We can be watchful for things to pray for. And second, we can be watchful and watch for the way God answers prayer. A discipline I've found really helpful for many years now is dividing a page of a journal or just a piece of paper in two diagonally. And on one side of the line, writing as many things that I am thankful for that I can think of. And on the other side, as many things I can think of that I'm praying for. And let me tell you, it is incredible to see those things move from the prayer section to the thanks section as I watch to see how God answers prayer. In your prayer life, let me encourage you to be watchful for things to pray for and the way God answers and to be thankful for everything you can think of. Jesus transforms our prayer life. Well, we're nearly at the end of the passage we read, but we see in the next couple of verses that Paul has a specific prayer request for the people of Colossae, and it involves his primary number one mission to share the good news of Jesus with the world. Jesus transforms our evangelistic life. That word evangelistic or evangelism comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means good news or gospel. So it simply means sharing the good news of Jesus with those who don't know it. And Paul wants strength in doing that in Colossians 4 verses 3 to 4. 
He says, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Now, the way Paul asks for prayer here is deeply humbling and challenging to me, and I think to all of us, because Paul is currently imprisoned. He's wearing chains, and we don't know for sure where he is or for how long he's been in prison, but he doesn't have his freedom. So if I were Paul, I'd be asking for prayer that I'd soon be set free from prison. Not that there's anything wrong with asking for prayer for our own personal difficulties. Paul does it elsewhere. But it's clear where Paul's priorities lie when he essentially says, pray that people would listen and respond to the gospel despite my imprisonment. Now, prison might not seem a likely place for people to become Christians, although as someone who has worked in prison ministry, I can tell you, you'd be surprised. And actually, if you look in the New Testament, you see many stories of this happening as well. But there's something here about asking God to work for his glory through the most challenging, impossible circumstances of our lives. In which scenarios in your life would you say it's impossible that someone might listen to the gospel? Maybe you've got a friend who is completely opposed to all things Christian. Maybe you've got a family member who specifically asked you not to talk about that Jesus stuff. Maybe you're in a relationship with someone who isn't a Christian and you're worried that they won't want to be with you if you talk too much about your faith. Maybe it's something completely different. Here, Paul asks the Colossians to pray that in what seems like an impossible scenario, Jesus would be made known. And he encourages us to pray the same and watch God answer those prayers. See, we don't know exactly when or exactly where Colossians was written, but we can be pretty sure that it was written earlier than Paul's letter to the Philippians, which is another letter written from prison, but a different prison, probably later in Paul's life. And the reason I mention this is because in Philippians 1, Paul goes into great detail about how many of the palace guard who are keeping watch on him have become Christians. How many of them have responded to the gospel and come to faith? And I would have loved to have been uh, in the church in Colossae, having read the letter to the Colossians and, and had that request to pray that people would listen to the gospel while Paul's in prison. And then later, as the letters would have been circulated around the churches, to read the letter to the Philippians and say, oh my goodness, we prayed that the gospel would be heard during Paul's imprisonment. And look, God answered. Let us never be afraid to pray for God to act in the impossible because nothing is impossible for him. But evangelism isn't just something we should pray for and let the experts handle. There's a nod in verses five and six towards the way each one of us acts towards those who are not yet members of the church. And it says this, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Paul says to make the most of every opportunity to speak about Jesus and the hope that we have in him. But what about when that isn't possible or isn't appropriate? Perhaps when someone's completely shut off to the gospel or they've asked you not to speak to them about it or when your workplace doesn't permit you to speak explicitly about your faith. Paul speaks about our conversation being full of grace, seasoned with salt. I quite like salt. I'm going to admit that to you. In the last few years, I've got really into cooking and I've discovered that salt really does make everything a little bit tastier. 
even caramel. You know, salt and garlic, they're the taste adding ingredients, aren't they? But salt is a unique ingredient because it draws out the flavor in the rest of the dish. When Paul speaks about our conversation being full of grace seasoned with salt, he's talking about conversations which draw out the overflow of that transformation Jesus Christ is bringing about in our lives. Conversation that celebrates his grace and love. Conversation that is kind and compassionate. Conversation that is full of hope. Conversation that is full of forgiveness and mercy. Conversation that is full of Jesus, is full of Jesus, even when it isn't explicitly about Jesus. Paul urges us to pray for opportunities to share the gospel and boldly take them when they come up and the rest of the time to be overflowing with salted grace. Jesus transforms our evangelistic life. Now, just a couple of comments to close. If we were to read the last uh, 16 or so verses of Colossians, which I'm not going to do, we'd see that Paul name drops a whole bunch of different people who've participated in his ministry. He names people who've prayed for him, who've helped him out materially, people who've helped him share the gospel, and people who've just been devoted friends. So Jesus transforms our family lives, our work lives, our prayer lives, our evangelistic lives, and our community lives as he brings all of those things together. For one last time, let me encourage you to have a look at that list of things that you did this week. Every single task, however mundane, is an opportunity to glorify God, to work as if God is our master. How can you glorify him in the weeks to come? Can you honor him by submitting to God-given authority or by leading like a servant? Can you honor him by devoting yourself to watchful, thankful prayer? Can you honor him by sharing the hope of Jesus with those around you? You know, in Christ, even the mundane can be exciting because it is all for the glory of God.